Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Deborah Diamond on the show. Deborah is a natural psychic medium and medical intuitive who was gifted with her abilities as a child. She provides remarkable insights for clients to assist in healing and expansion. She is a former top-ranked Wall Street money manager, regular CNBC commentator, and former professor at Johns Hopkins University, who left a prominent career to pursue a life of service and spirituality. And she is also a death doula and has written a beautiful book that we'll talk about a little bit um, in the interview today. So welcome, Deborah. Thank you, Marla. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. So, wow, how did you how did you go from Wall Street manager and professor at Johns Hopkins? Well, the professor makes a little bit of a sense of sense, but and getting into um, mediumship and psychic work and that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's a good question. And uh, when I was in the investment business. Uh, I always knew things. Um, I didn't know how I knew these things, but um, I would be able to uh, pick up an annual report or a prospectus, and without reading it, I would know if it would be a good investment. I would know about the management team, the product, uh, the industry, and uh, I, I didn't know how I knew all these things. And of course, in the investment business, nobody talks about you know the word psychic just doesn't come up. So my, you know, it's, uh, it's really a dollars and cents business. So uh, my boss used to say to me, you know, Deborah, you have really good instincts. So I just described it to good instincts. That was right. as far as I went. I didn't think it was anything else. And I, you know, really didn't spend any time thinking about it. Um, and it wasn't until years later, I decided to take an intuition development class in New York a weekend class, because I felt like I had good intuition. It'd be fun to take this class just to tune it up. And I went up to New York for the class. I live on the East Coast, but I went up to New York and um, it was a weekend class. And Saturday morning, we did a few exercises and I was getting everything in these exercises. We did some psychometry and some telepathy. I was getting everything, but I um, wasn't too concern because they were pretty low-key exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, when we we took a break and when we came back, the teacher said, now we're going to do a seance. And I got a little panicky because <laughs> I wasn't really there for a seance. And, you know, I, I looked at, I picked up the uh, schedule for the day. I didn't see anything there about a seance, but uh, I thought, well, you know, I really don't want to do this. Frankly, I was scared. And, um, 
then I thought, well, you know, it's only Saturday morning and this class goes through Sunday afternoon. So let me just do this one next exercise and then we'll go on to the next exercise and mm -hmm. nothing's going to happen. So the teacher said, I'll put you all in a meditative state and then take you out of the meditation. And if you see anything, you see anyone, you let me know and I'll tell you what to do. So I thought, well, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm not going to see anyone. So you know, we meditated and she took us out of the meditation. And then uh, she said, does anyone see anything? See anyone? And, uh, you know, we all looked at each other. And then I raised my hand and she said, yes, Deborah, what do you see? And I said, I, I see about 50 people that these were people who had passed. And uh, some of them were family members of mine. There were um, loved ones from some of the other students in the room. And then just some random people. I saw a few 42nd Street showgirls kind of prancing through the room. <laughs> so um, I was completely overwhelmed. You know, I had no idea what was happening. The teacher said, if you see someone in the corner of the room, chances are they go with someone in the corner. So I said, well, I do see someone in the right corner. And she asked me to describe that person. And he was Hispanic with uh, long, dark hair parted in the middle, big handlebar mustache, white teeth. And um, as I described him, the woman sitting in that corner began to sob. Uh, and she said, um, I can identify him. That was my fiance. He died two years ago. And she asked me if during the break, if she showed me pictures on her cell phone, if I would be able to identify him from the pictures. And I said, sure, because he was just plain as day to me. So I... Um, uh, during the break, she came over and she flipped through some pictures on her cell phone and I said, there, that's him. And she said, yes, that's my fiance. And she explained that she had wanted to hear from him. She'd been waiting two years to hear from him and had not heard anything from him. So she was very um, appreciative to me for making this connection. Now, I was totally overwhelmed, but she, she uh, hugged me and she thanked me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I come from Wall Street and there are no thank yous on Wall Street and certainly <laughs> no hugs. Yes. So, um, I, you know, I, I knew I had done something significant for someone. I knew I had done something meaningful, but I was really overwhelmed. Um, so, you know, I spent the last, uh, the rest of the weekend in that class and all sorts of things were happening and people were coming up to me and saying, you must have been doing this for a long time. And I said, um, actually, I've never done this before. So that was sort of how things started for me. It wasn't anything that I was looking for. It was mm -hmm. nothing that I wanted. It's not like I grew up thinking, you know, I hope I get to be a psychic medium one day. I, you know, so <laughs> not anything I, I, you know, was seeking, but, um, I didn't tell anybody about that experience because people don't talk about extraordinary experiences. Um, I kept it to myself, but that summer I went off to Taos, New Mexico, where I'd been a number of times in the past. I went out there to paint for the summer because I'm also an artist. Um, and I rented a place for a few months to just go out and paint. Um, at the end of the two months, when my lease was up, I, I knew I wasn't coming back east. I didn't know why, but I, I knew I was supposed to stay there. So I stayed and that's where I really began to unpack these gifts that I was given and, um, you know, really relax about uh, this ability because in Taos, this sort of thing is kind of normalized. If people ask you, what do you do? And you say, I'm a psychic. They say, oh, me too. So, <laughs> you know, it's just nobody thinks anything of it. So yes. there's musicians and writers and artists and whatnot. So 
Um, so I just didn't think too much about it anymore. And it just became something, you know, I just started doing the practice and eventually uh, teaching and doing readings. And then I came back East eventually because I felt like my time in Taos was, was done. And I um, came back thinking, well, I, I won't be doing this anymore because I'm coming East and the East coast is not like Taos. Um, but that's not what happened. When I came back East, I was approached by a woman who'd had a near death experience. She was, um, 37 years old and had a cardiac arrest in her kitchen um, and uh, with her little kids while she was making breakfast. And um, she had an NDE and she asked me if I would do a reading for her, uh, which I did. And then a friend of hers wanted a reading and uh, that somebody wanted a workshop. And before I knew it, you know, I was, I was uh, doing this practice on the East Coast. So that's, that's you know, how it evolved. Um, I always had this ability. I didn't have the training. You know, I did, I did eventually train at the Arthur Finley Institute mm -hmm. in the UK and other places. But, you know, when I was in the investment business, I just had, um, I had the raw material, uh, but not the, it was good enough to do the work. That's right. for sure. But, um, but now, you know, I'm, I'm trained in what I do, which, you know, allows me to do readings for people, which is, you know, different than picking up a prospectus and knowing, you know, that the stock's going to be a winner. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's how it came about. I remember also you talking about your son saying something um, about, oh, yeah. yeah, could you share that? Yeah, of course. So I have three sons and um, they're all pretty left brain, uh, you know, sober people that, you know, um, <laughs> in, uh, you know, high prof profile professions, but um, they're open minded. Anyway, on my way home from New York, I called my youngest son, who's a, a Duke MBA. So that'll give you an idea of like how his brain works, mm -hmm. you know, he's very left brain. And um, I called him and and I told him what happened in this class. And uh, he didn't say anything, he listened. And when I was all done, he said, well, that makes sense. You know, we're just energy and the energy has to go somewhere. Wow. And um, it was something I could understand, you know, putting it in that context, something that, you know, he was saying this, that what happened was a cross between science and spirituality. And that made sense to me. Right. Um, and I've used that explanation, you know, that we are energy and everything is energy. I, I use that now all the time uh, to understand these phenomena. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I bet that wasn't something you expected to come from him <laughs> that he had ever really thought. Yeah, no, actually, no, I did. I mean, I, not particularly <laughs> that explanation, but... Um, He's uh, very, he listens to a lot of stuff and usually synthesizes it down to one sentence. He's good. Right, at right. Great. So I know that you work now as a deaf doula, which you help, you sit at the bedside of people who are usually going to pass within the next 24 hours, or that's what supposedly you think. And, um, and you're also a medium. So can you tell us a little bit about that work and some of the things that you've just, you know, a few stories that have just kind of amazed you? I don't think, I've never had a, um, I know you're different than a hospice worker, but um, I've never had someone like yourself who's actually set at the bed of someone actively dying. And um, so can you talk about that, please? Sure, yeah. Um, so I 
I'm a death doula. Not everyone is familiar with what a death doula is, so I'll just briefly explain right. uh, the idea. So um, I think many people have heard of birth doulas, and they help women. They help usher life into the world, and death doulas help usher life out. Um, so the idea of keeping vigil at end of life is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years, but it's more recently been institutionalized into this idea of being a death doula, sitting bedside at hospice with the dying. And um, I had wanted to do this work because when my mother passed away in 2001, um, we had hospice come to help. And uh, at one point, one of the hospice professionals handed me a piece of paper and said, you might want to read this. And I thought, well, that probably has to do with medication or, you know, something. So I, I set it aside. But eventually when I picked it up, um, I, and I read it, it said, if the body's ready and the soul isn't, you don't leave. And if the soul is ready and the body isn't, you don't leave. But if the soul's ready and the body's ready, then you leave. Wow. So I, you know, that really struck me. I, I found that to be just kind of remarkable because this hospice professional was saying, uh, death is a process. It involves body and soul. Uh, and up until then, you know, I'd always thought of death as something like straight out of the movies, you know, something very dramatic with the heavens opening up and all the secrets of the universe being revealed. And it's not like that. It's, it's a process like birth. So I, I knew I wanted to be of service at hospice. I knew I wanted to do something. And I um, felt like I could be a death doula who sat bedside with the actively dying. And actively dying means within 24 to 48 hours. Although, um, you know, clinicians don't always get that right because, mm -hmm. you know, there's a body and a soul involved. So mm -hmm. that's why sometimes if you walk into the room of someone who, you know, looks like they're barely hanging on and they've been looking like that for weeks, they're not ready to leave yet, you know? So even though their body looks like that, their soul, you know, is, is not there yet. So, you know, sitting bedside with the actively dying, while it means technically the last 24 to 48 hours, they could be there for weeks. Um, and sitting with the actively dying means that these people are not um, responsive, but they are conscious. So I think many people, if they've had a loved one at hospice or the hospital, or they've been with someone uh, at end of life, they, um, you know, they may think, you know, you walk into the room and you look at the person lying there hooked up to, you know, various machines possibly. And um, it looks like nobody's home and it's kind of frightening, you know, but, there's actually a lot more going on at end of life than we can mm -hmm. see, you know? So it's happening in this invisible world. And because I am a medium, um, I'm able to see into this other space. Uh, and I, and I do, you know, uh, at end of life. So I, um, I see people at end of life. They're very much out of their bodies. They are, as we discussed earlier, before we started, uh, talking on the air, they are journeying. They are out of their bodies as they are transitioning. 
And uh, they're in the, you know, they sort of go back and forth between being in their body and being out of their body. And when they're out of their body, they may be journeying to the other dimension. Um, they may be seeing fantastic landscapes. They may be visiting favorite memories from when they were a child. They may be seeing loved ones or, you know, relatives on the other side. I mean, there's any number, or visiting their new home on the other side. There's any number of things that they could be doing. And when they're doing that, they are out of, out of body, they are not in pain, and they they feel good. I mean, yeah. they are in a in that traveling in that higher dimension where they're just pure energy, and and they feel good. Their their physical body is still lying there, but their their etheric body is, you know, in this other dimension. And they go back and forth between the the journeying and then kind of being in their body. Um, and what I, you know, the, the most profound thing that I've learned about, you know, what happens at end of life um, is something that builds on, on uh, my work um, with near-death experiencers. I wrote a book called Life After Near Death, and I worked with um, many uh, near-death experiencers who had extraordinary after effects as a result of their near-death experience. And the reason they have these after effects is because they, they come back, they also journey, near-death experiencers. They journey, they're out of body. And every time they journey, they or when they journey, they are out in the universe and they appear to sort of get tanked up at the universal filling station. I don't know how else to describe it. But <laughs> they're, they're out there and they come back with like a little bit more consciousness, which is why these people... Um, have these extraordinary abilities, including psychic and medium, you know, mediumistic abilities or healing abilities or um, high vibration abilities like music or math. Um, so how do we explain that? Well, they're coming back with their energy altered. They come back with more consciousness and they, they appear to come back with more consciousness than they started out with. So I, I see a similar thing at end of life. Every time the, um, uh, actively dying are traveling outside of their body. They go out into the universe or wherever they're going and they, they come back with a little bit more consciousness, you know, each time that they're, they're right. traveling. Um, but, you know, unlike near death experiencers, they are out of body multiple times, you know, with the near death experience, they go out of their body, they have their near death experience and then they come back. That's it. But, you know, at end of life, there are multiple journeys. So uh, each time they journey, they come back with more consciousness at the same time that their physical body may be declining. So it, it, it appears that at end of life, their consciousness is, is blossoming while their physical body is declining. Right. Now, I have a friend who's a hospice chaplain, and I was um, telling her about this. And, you know, when I told her, she said, I know exactly what you mean. She said, because now hospice chaplains are talking to patients from the moment they come in the door, unlike a death doula who's only interacting with the actively dying. And the actively dying aren't usually talking. So, uh, but she's, she talks to these people and she said, you know, they tell me about their journeying. They tell me about their traveling. And she said, you know, every time they come back, they're a little different. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when I've given talks about uh, my book, Diary of a Death Doula, 
um, and oftentimes there are many doulas in the audience, they, you know, when I get, when I talk about this, they are all nodding along. They all know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about. So it's, um, it's something, of course, that, you know, we can't prove. We don't have the language. We don't have the science, you know, to measure out-of-body experiences. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, this is information that I can share. And um, it seems to make sense, but, you know, it's what, you know, you're working with what's available. Right, right. Well, it seems that, boy, there are like, millions of near-death experience stories now, you know, coming out. And I've interviewed quite a few and you're right. They come up back, usually not a little bit changed, but transformed. I mean, they leave jobs and they just, you know, completely transformed. And I think that's, that just speaks so loudly. I mean, the experience in itself is amazing, the stories, but the point that their lives change so dramatically is just, I think, speaks really loudly. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the definition of a near-death experience, the fact that they come back transformed, unable to go back to their previous life. You know, it's not how many, you know, after effects they have. Or right. Many, you know, if they went through the tunnel or the light. As a matter of fact, many NDEers that I talk to are often embarrassed because they say, you know, they whisper to me. They say, I didn't, I didn't go through a tunnel. <laughs> I didn't right. see the light. You know, I probably didn't have a legitimate experience. And, it, you know, you don't need to have every single one of those elements to have a near-death experience. Right. You know, so, um, but uh, you're right. There are millions and millions of and millions of of people who've had NDEs. I mean, it's a topic that wasn't discussed too much years ago, and now all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork. Um, these these spiritually transformative experiences and extraordinary experiences are much more common than um, I think most people realize. I think many people have them, but they don't like to talk about them for fear of ridicule or being embarrassed. But if they did talk about them, I think they would find that there are many people who share these, yeah. you know, who have them. And it would, be, it would be great if people would talk about them. It's, you know, and I think it's the same for a lot of even the spiritually transformative experiences. And with children, you know, seeing spirit, invisible friends, or remembering a past life, remembering choosing parents. And... I think it's so incredibly common and celebrated back centuries ago or even in our indigenous cultures today. But in the Western world, it's just, you know, it's unfortunately, it's downplayed or, you know, presented as just imagination. And so all those things, I think as all those things get out there in the world, you know, even though it's anecdotal, science is really getting involved now too, which is, which is really beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that um, it's not been uh, normalized, these experiences, is that in our Western world, you know, we very much believe in science mm -hmm. and um, science kind of rules the, the, you know, rules our world. And they, you know, done, you know, they've contributed many wonderful uh, projects, but um, in the Eastern cultures, I, you know, I think there's always been a respect for these long held spiritual beliefs. And it's just not as much part of the Western culture. I think as I, what I think is very interesting is 
um, under the circumstances where, that the whole world is under right now with uh, COVID, um, there's, I think, a huge transformation that's taking place, yes. uh, collective transformation. Um, as a matter of fact, yesterday I was walking with my son, the one who had talked to me years ago about this, you know, the, the um, what happened in this class in New York. We were walking and I said, you know, it's really funny. I've been walking for years and I always wondered where all the people were, you know, how come nobody else is walking? And now you go for a walk and like everybody's walking. Right. Walking is a form of meditation. So, so, you know, you've got people, everybody's out there walking, i.e. everybody is meditating. Mm. And, um, you know, all the... um, all the requirements that you need for spiritual transformation have now been enforced on us. Solitude, um, you know, simple practices, um, you know, isolation, you know, all sorts of things. Being out in nature instead of being in big crowds. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, All of that, you know, being cut off. So, um, and it's happening all around the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are, these are transformational kinds of experiences. And I think that, you know, in a few years, you'll start to see the results of this. And I think it should be really interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, Deborah, are you, um, when, when talking about the soul and the body, I, I love that, that that pump, that pamphlet said that in the, you know, the one that the person gave you from the hospice. And when you're sitting with the actively dying, do you actually like see deceased loved ones in the room or you feel the energy or what are the, some of the things that, um, that happen? Um, I do see um, uh, deceased loved ones in uh, pretty much all the rooms. It's, it seems to be fairly standard. Um, They come in to, Uh, provide, I believe, support and comfort. And uh, also some, some form of like legacy, I think, to the dying. And, and the dying know that they're there, they they know it, and they recognize it. And I think many people, um, besides myself, have had these experiences of sitting bedside with the dying and, and uh, the, the dying will have a conversation, but you only hear p- half of it. You know, right. they'll say something and then they pause. And that's when the loved one in spirit is talking and then they respond <laughs> and then they pause, you know, so you can only hear part of the conversation. Um, because I'm a medium, I'm able to see, um, you know, these loved ones in spirit and I have conversed with them. Um, uh, and, um, you know, there was one room that I was in and there was the mother, uh, of a, the patient along with her sister, um, who, who were there. And I said to her, what, why are you here? And she said, this is what we do. You know, she said, it's when you cross over, this is like an assignment that you're given. I mean, I think of it as like high class jury duty, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like some civic responsibility, you know, right. over and this is what, this is like what you do. And she said, we would never turn it down. I mean, this is what you do. And um, I said, well, how do you know when to come in? And she said, well, you know, it's sort of like you have speed dial on your phone, you have memory on your phone. And, um, you know, so we, you know, those on the other side are energy. They can appear seamlessly, you know, at any time. It's not right. like they have to travel halfway around the world. I mean, they're just, they're energy. So right. they know there's some sort of 
uh, I guess, call that goes out and they get it. Uh, of course, they know everything on the other side. They see yeah. everything that's going on with us. So, um, and then they appear and uh, they're in those rooms. And then also they, uh, you know, accompany the, um, the dying, you know, as they cross over. And that's mm -hmm. whether, you know, that seems to be true, whether you're in hospice or hospital or at home, or if you die from trauma, because that's a question that I get a lot. You know, what about someone who dies tragically from, you know, an automobile accident or, you know, something, something that happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always seen in those, in those circumstances that the, um, dying, you know, when they're out of body, somebody always seems to appear from the other side instantly to help them cross over. Right. Yeah. Wow. That, that is beautiful. Have you um, worked, and I really can't think of a better job to have when you're on the other side than to come over and help your, you know, help your loved ones transition. Have you worked any um, as a death doula with, with the young? No, no. You haven't. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I always wonder if, I don't just wonder, I truly believe that if somehow we could teach our, our children, you know, we're all, it seems as if our generation's becoming so interested in all of these, you know, spirituality and the afterlife and all the things that we're talking about right now. And if we could as, as a young person, instead of having so much fear around when someone passes, if instead we could embrace it really as you have and to teach a child about, you know, energy and that you can still connect and it wouldn't be any, really in a religious way. It could be a supplement to a religion, you know, to a religion, I guess, but just to take away that fear and know that that person isn't lost. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons um, that there's so much fear about end of life and death, really, I, I think it's because of the medical establishment. I mean, for mm -hmm. thousands of years, thousands, um, death was part of life. You know, if you go back to the Egyptians 5,000 years ago, the oldest civilization on earth, they believed in the afterlife and everything that you did during your life, you know, was also they also viewed that as sort of part of your, your journey into the afterlife. Things were weighed and measured and, you know, and there's, of course, they had the book of the dead that describes the journey that people made to the afterlife. It was part of their life. And the same was true for other civilizations, the Incas, the Mayans, the Mesopotamians. And um, for, you know, many, many, many of the ancient cultures, death was just a continuation. Yes. Um, and even here in our Western culture, up until maybe the Victorian age, people died at home, surrounded by their loved ones. And in the Victorian age, they would, you know, put you in the parlor and, you know, um, take pictures uh, because cameras had just been developed. So they would take pictures of you with your loved one who had passed. And death was part of life. It wasn't until we start to get to modern medicine where people are whisked away to hospitals and hospice and hooked up to machines. In a, you know, and it's a very antiseptic kind of clinical environment. And I think that's what really strikes fear into the heart of people. Right. You know, all of a sudden the soul has been removed from death. You know, it's just become this clinical process, you know, and so 
Um, I, I think that's you know part of the issue now. People are, I think, starting to um, respond to that, and you know there seem to be some movements afoot now to talk about death and 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 do it a different way. And I think that that's partially because of the you know our generation who. Um, the boomers, you know, they're always like trying to figure out how we can do something better. Right. <laughs> so right. Now it's like, how can we do be death better? Right. So, you know, um, so I think some of that means people are, are electing to die at home or have, you know, talk about green burials or, you know, the certain rituals at end of life um, to, to make it a little bit less clinical and more spiritual, more personal. Absolutely. And you, and even look at healing in in Western culture. I think we're waking up that science, of course, is very important, but it's definitely missing a part because with the rampant onset of uh, everything that's going on in this world, you know, we need more than than more medicine. We need healing of the heart. And I have a series coming up on actually shamans and plant medicine. And we talk a lot about that. And, and so I think we're starting to go in that energy healing, Reiki, you know, seeing more of that too. Do you see that some in your, in your profession? Well, I, there's definitely been a rising tide of interest in all of these things. I mean, there yeah people who come to me now who never would have been, you know, who never would have come to a psychic or a medium years ago. And um, there seems to be some conversion taking place where ordinary people are now being imbued for various reasons with this enhanced spirituality and they're seeking and they want to be of service and they have, you know, um, this higher vibration. I just think more and more people are going through um, transformation. And, yes. But, yes. but I think what we've seen up to now is just a, a slice of what's happening, you know, what will be happening going forward. I mean, absolutely. This, you know, this is um, just unprecedented in so many ways. I mean, beyond all the obvious ways, I just think spiritually, this is, we're heading into a whole new age. Yeah. Um, so let's just briefly talk a little bit about your book, Diary of a Death Doula. And um, I love that, I don't remember what the numbers were, but I know at one point you're talking about just the importance of knowing that there's something bigger, you know, bigger than ourselves. And um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit and how you feel like if more people would would not just believe that, but just kind of live that, how how that would look in the world uh i'm i'm, I'm not sure i followed that oh i'm sorry and one one of your um one of the things that i think they're what were there 25 25 lessons uh-huh yes yes and one of the lessons was was believing that you know there was a bigger force than ourselves in the oh, world uh -huh. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. And just the just can you talk just briefly about why you, you know, why that was important for you, you to put in the book? Right. So, um, so I think when when you're uh, dealing with these um, issues of life and death, 
because that's really what, um, you know, if you're, you're a death jeweler, that's really what you're doing. Um, it has a profound effect on you and you see, um, you see what's really important. And, yes, yes. Um, yeah, and you, you go to a different level and a different depth of um, understanding. And I mean, there's so much that we'll never understand, you know, about death. There's, you know, I think I've been shown just a very minute uh, slice of what happens at end of life, but these other um, dimensions and what unfolds at end of life is still, there's still a big mystery about it because yeah. as I said earlier, you know, we don't have the language or the science yet to understand all of this. Yeah. Um, but, but I do believe that there are, um, you know, greater forces at work than we know of, you know, we have our own ways of, of trying to understand that. And, you know, through spirituality and various practices and whatnot, we can try to get, you know, wrap our heads around it or, uh, but, um, still so much of us, so much of it eludes us, um, because it's another dimension with another language and another, it just, we, we can't apply our principles to it because it's, right. it's just um, not the same uh, environment. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I see all the time in all of my work that, you know, there are greater forces at work. You know, we like to think that we control everything, but I think that at the end of the day, there's very little that we actually control. I just think that there, you know, there are, bigger forces that are at work. And, you know, when you try to go against them, I think oftentimes they steer you back to where you should be. Right. And, you know, and then there are people, you know, there are people who accept that and go with it. And there are people who, you know, just insist on doing it their way. And, you know, so, and that's what life is about. It's a journey and, you know, there are lessons for all of us, right, but, right. but I, but I do believe that there are, greater forces at work, yeah, more powerful forces at work. And if you, and if you listen, and if you pay attention, um, they will uh, make themselves known to you. And then, you know, and then the challenge is to follow that guidance, you know, so mm -hmm. when they say turn left, go left, or when they say turn right, go right, you know, so um, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Okay, Deborah. well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I so appreciate it. And I just want the listeners to know that that your book is is amazing. So, you know, please, please run out and get it. There are so many, there's so much wonderful information in it. So if people want to find you, where would they, where would they do that? Right. So, um, well, uh, they can contact me through my website, DebraDiamondAuthor.com. That's D-E-B-R-A and diamond like a diamond ring, D-I-A-M-O-N-D, DebraDiamondAuthor.com. I also have a YouTube channel and I do teaching on that channel and speaking so they can subscribe to that. Um, and I, um, you know, they could sign up for my newsletter. If you go on my website, you could sign up for my newsletter. I only send it out if I have news, so I don't inundate <laughs> people. Great, great. But, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of inspirational information in the newsletter, so that's always nice. I think people really appreciate that. Um, I do give readings and um, psychic and mediumship readings, and they can contact me for those through my website as well. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's a variety of ways. And uh, my books, Diary of a Death Doula, 
25 Lessons the Dying Teach Us About the Afterlife, and uh, Life After Near Death is another book I've written. Um, and those are available at bookstores. I don't know how many bookstores are open right now, but they're also available online at Amazon. So, you know, please um, read them. And if you enjoy them, please leave a review. And, you know, I'm always happy to hear from people to hear their comments. Right. Well, thank you so much. You're doing such, I mean, what a wonderful career to help help people transition and being support for the families. So you're doing amazing things. So thank you so much for spending a little bit, bit of time with us today. My pleasure, Marla. Thank you so much. And, and congratulations on all your wonderful work. Oh, thank you. You have a great rest of the day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.